Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Contractors are questioning how the White House could ask for compliance with a procurement rule that's not even formally proposed yet. Last week, a guidance memo came out having to do with small business participation in government-wide acquisition contracts. The action raises a lot of questions. Joining me with details, the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berto. And David, this one did seem like a little bit of a reach, the rule of two well, for GWACs, but go ahead and start doing it. But we haven't formally come out with the rulemaking yet. You've touched on so many potential implications in that very short opening sentence there, Tom. And, you know, for one thing, this memorandum caught me very much by surprise. And for something of this magnitude and scope, and particularly with this kind of direction of start now, even though we haven't begun writing the proposed changes to the regulations yet, it's really got a lot of disturbing elements. It's not that there's a lack of an understanding of the goal. I mean, it says they want to help agencies promote both a diverse federal supplier base, which is defined in a lot of different ways, and advanced contract stewardship. So let's take care of the taxpayers' dollars, right, by using these multiple award contracts. Those are noble goals. They're not the only goals, though. In fact, one of the goals that's not mentioned anywhere in this seven-page memo is, are you getting the results you need from the contracts you award? So it's not just the front end, but it's actually the back end of the agencies getting the support for their missions and functions. But there's a lot of other questions that get raised here. I'll be happy to go over a couple of them. Well, this imposed the rule of two for small businesses in GWACs that are not necessarily set aside for small business. So it seems like a kind of changing the rules for all contractors that one places on these particular government-wide acquisition contracts. Well, and there are competing incentives or objectives here, right? So if you increase the application of the rule of two, which at its core says if the contracting officer believes that there will be two qualified small business bidders of roughly equal characteristics, right, that you can basically freeze the contract at that point, uh, the solicitation at that point, and just pick between those two. They haven't even submitted yet. You're making your decision before you've even seen the submissions. You have to have reasonable belief that they would do that, right? There are two problems with that. Number one is it immediately freezes out everybody else because there's frequently way more than two who would love to compete for this and probably to the government's benefit if you did. The second thing, though, and I think the more insidious uh, consequence is it pretty much locks in only those people who are already in the business of they're on this multiple award contract. They're core business is government contracting. So all this push that you've heard in the administration, and you, you heard it just last week at a big conference of outside investors, you know, we want more innovators. We want more non-traditional suppliers. We want more small businesses who bring the innovation. Rule of two pretty much locks those people out because you're not going to be the first or second end if you're not already in the game. And this also goes along with, you know, maybe in the flip side, if they're trying to encourage more people to come in, but at the same time, they impose just endless reporting and compliance regulations on your labor practices, whether you have a gas stove in the company kitchen, all of these things that I would think people that are new to the federal contracting field would say, this ain't worth it, all this work. There's even a line in this memorandum, and then we'll get to some other things that illuminate what you just said there, but you know that, in fact, companies may find it easier to compete for work under their, quote, reduced administrative burden and simpler evaluation procedures than they do just pursuing competition in the open market. There are very few companies that say it's easier and faster to do business with the federal government than it is in the commercial marketplace. Right. And then there's also the issue of whether the administrative practices 
yeah. rules and laws <laughs> permit an agency to impose compliance on a rule that's not even proposed yet, let alone out in the proposed state. This may be the most gravely concerning line in the entire seven pages. OFPP, that's the Office of Federal Procurement Policy that issued the memorandum, encourages early agency adoption of these management steps, even though in the prior paragraph it says, you know, the Small Business Administration and the agency members of the Federal Acquisition Regulation Council, the FAR Council, have begun developing proposed regulatory amendments to address these actions. We don't know what those proposed amendments are going to say. We haven't had an opportunity to review them and comment on them. The government had not had an opportunity to adjudicate and incorporate those comments, which often make the regulations better. And yet their agencies are being encouraged to begin immediately adopting these management steps. This is confusion of the highest order, and it really does violate the basic elements of the administrative procedure. Act, in our view. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And on that dramatic note, I want to switch gears here and get to the tax bill that has cleared the House, and it has an R&D tax credit change that a lot of companies welcome. In your view, it also makes things better for the government. It does. You know that this bill, uh, which was negotiated both between the House and the Senate, so it now goes to the Senate. We'll see what happens on the Senate side. That may be hearings, et cetera. But it, it's a basic trade-off of some business-related tax benefits with some enhancements in credits for lower-income families with children. And it's a, a trade that's been discussed for a couple of years now. But it's often seen that this, particularly this research and development tax credit, is just for the benefit of commercial companies. There's a huge hidden benefit for the federal government here, Tom, because a company that's doing business with the government, if it can write off its research and development in the year it incurs those costs, can actually do that research before they have a contract as part of, in fact, the development of a way to respond to a solicitation to improve the systems and processes that the government would have. This is free benefits to the government in advance of a contract, but it goes away if, in fact, you can only write off 20% of that cost in the Europe. So we strongly endorse this, and we endorse this not as a partisan bill or a business bill, but as a bill that at its core has a real benefit for every single agency in the federal government. Which means it probably doesn't stand a snowball's chance in hell of actually passing. But Well, one of the things that happened when the provision expired back a couple of years ago and we went back to only 20% per year is companies had spent the money, put the bid in. It was part of their bid. It was being evaluated. And now all of a sudden the entire cost basis of their proposal is thrown into a cocked hat. So uh, that caused a lot of disruption and concern. And we had companies just in the services business, this is not just manufacturing, who were writing off hundreds of billions of dollars of losses associated with this. So we'd really like to see this restored. And we do think every agency in the government, again, that drive for innovation, that drive for system and process improvement, this helps in that regard. So we strongly support this bill. Yeah. And this sudden change then can really change a company's balance sheet as well as its activities. It can. It changes the balance sheets. It changes the valuations. It changes your ability actually to bid and win the contracts because now you may not have, have the cost basis that you need to have to be able to win. And I also wanted to ask you your take on the proposed rule that contractors would have pay bans for job openings. And there's this whole new approach coming to pay, and they're telling agencies you can't look at someone's pay history in hiring them. And there's a lot going on for contractors, too, with pay. And what's your take here? This one is following the procedures in the Administrative Procedure Act. So, you know, it was in the Federal Register notice last Tuesday, and it is a proposed rule 
for what they call pay equity and transparency in federal contracting. It has a number of flaws associated with it, not the least of which is that the justification is that this will save contractors time and money and help them hire the right person. By the way, I would note that last Friday's jobs report says we're continuing to have a very tight labor market. You know, there's uh, still more jobs open than there are people looking for work. And that's especially true in the government contracting business. And so sometimes hiring anybody at all is a real challenge in that regard. So we think it'll cost more, but we really think the real constraint is that the contracts will probably limit what contractors can pay. They already do, right? So every contract has already bands of pay built into it. So many years of experience, so much degree of series, and this is what you're going to get to charge for it. You win the contract, not by bidding high, but by bidding low. I think if the government really wants contractors to pay more, they need to start awarding contracts to companies that are paying people a much fairer and decent wage. That's not what they're doing. Yes. In some ways, it would almost force the GS system on federal contractors and that what you're doing for a contractor is within this band, and that's the way life is. Well, there are some states, of course, that have some version of this already, and the District of Columbia just uh, put a law passed, I think, uh, back on the 12th of January. So it's it's still technically inside its 30-day congressional review process, but I don't see any sign that Congress is going to reject it. But whenever you start doing this, two things will happen. Number one is you're going to have to put a band in place, even though that actually might reduce your ability to hire the person you need. The other thing, of course, is who's going to say, oh, I'd love to start at the low end of the pay band? And we'll leave it right there. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom, for letting us on here and look forward to the next one. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we, uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. 
Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.